With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Why Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Why Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, so it is December 13th, 2023. We are finishing off a absolutely chaotic year. Uh, I, I think Bitcoin is, is sitting right now in, in the, uh, you know, I don't know, 40, 40,000. Um, you know, we had a little bit of a dip the other day. Um, the, the markets are, are, you know, kind of rallying a little bit towards the end of the year. We're seeing some, some little bit of global cooling. Um, you know, interest rates haven't, haven't risen. Uh, they're, they're essentially frozen. So we're seeing, you know, kind of a, a lot of, of issues, but we are seeing inflation come down here in the United States. So I'd say ov overall, Overall, um, it was a chaotic 2023. Um, the markets were, were not, you know, fabulous in any means, especially for for the cryptocurrency uh, or, or uh, blockchain-based industries. Uh, but there's been some shining stars. And so we're here today to kind of really talk again about real-world assets. Um, a lot of people hate, hate the name I've heard of, of RWAs. Um, but we really want to talk about the beginnings of, you know, what is blockchain-based finance? Um, the, the concepts that people have had around cryptocurrencies, which I think are, are horrible, horrible names, um, have kind of stuck and it's a good pet name that we have. But there's so much more that we can do with, with tokenized assets um, and, and in relation to also tokens and, and how we integrate with, with traditional fiat rails uh, and, and really traditional finance overall. So with me today is, is probably one of the most uh, you know, globally recognized experts um, in cryptocurrencies, tokenization, and everything else since we have Mr. Navin Gupta uh, from the world-renowned Ripple. And, and so Navin, thank you so much for joining us today. Jay, always good to be with you. And thank you very much for hosting me and inviting me here. Absolutely. So we've had you on a few times, uh, but just for, for the audience today, if they haven't listened to all of your other uh, interviews and podcasts, would you mind giving a little bit of your background, uh, specifically as it relates to, to uh, traditional fintech and, and uh, TradFi? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I started my career right out of grad school at Citigroup, a uh, number of years in the Bay Area, covering all the tech names on the West Coast. That time, Google wasn't a public company in 2002. I was, I was the relationship manager and it was, it was great, right? Apple, Amazon and likes. Then 10 years at HSBC in Asia, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, running large payment businesses. In India, I used to be on the board of NPCI, National Payment Corporation of India, which essentially runs the UPI, the low-value payment platform that lots of us use, and it's being exported to many countries around the world. And then I was building Uber for Trucks in India, my own company, exited that and joined Ripple seven years ago, and it's been a great ride since then. It's been a big ride for Ripple. I mean, it, it's, you know, we're not going to spend, you know, I'll give everyone the warning. We're not going to spend a bunch of time diving into, uh, you know, pulling information out of an event today about, you know, lawsuits or anything else. Um, but, but one to give, you know, the full support that, you know, Ripple has absolutely, um, you know, been a, a, a piercing light uh, to kind of help regulate, you know, properly want to regulate this industry. Um, and so, you know, for myself and the time that I've spent with Navin, I've spent with other people around the industry, uh, we're all very thankful uh, for, for what Ripple is doing to, to help uh, properly regulate, you know, these new digitized uh, tokens and assets. So um, that being said, 
you know, Ripple is, is, you know, really, I, I think been on a good run lately, uh, as far as, you know, the, it's been a crypto winter. Um, and we really have seen, you know, good, you know, steady, uh, in, increases in Ripple overall. And we're not going to talk about token prices or anything else. Uh, but the adoption of your platforms, I think is what's most important. Are you able to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how you're seeing financial institutions around the world, uh, continuing to integrate? Uh, with the Ripple uh, XRP ledger? Yeah, 100%, right? So I think, so firstly, um, given this um, regulatory uncertainties behind us, which means any project that are built on XRP ledger or use XRP as a bridge or what have you, or interact with Ripple in any way, there is no regulatory uncertainty. So by law, uh, it's it's essentially clear and, and people are able yeah. to see the judgment. So that's absolutely great. It's great for us. It's great for the ecosystem for us to be able to move forward, right? Um, Outside of that, the another thing that we have done is a um, few months ago, we acquired a company called Meteco, uh, which is which is a custody solution uh, that's integrated into the Ripple platform. So the easiest way to think about it would be, let's assume there is any digital asset firm which needs institutional capability. The first point for them to start is custody, right? Like, for example, if in a traditional world, somebody was to start a company, first point for them to start is have a bank account for the company. So they're able to essentially safe keep the, the the money that they have in the bank account. In this case, for digital assets, it's just custody where people are able to safe keep their money. And then the second thing immediately after that they need is payments. Essentially, able to move money around the world or within local jurisdictions, right? And it could be form, in form of anything. It could be in form of uh, their, their home currency. It could be in form of CM, CBDCs. It could be in form of any of the digital assets that they have, right? And then the money could move in and out and into fiat on and off rounds, right? So for us, these things are so complementary with each other. And that's what Ripple is doing. Ripple is going to customers and saying, hey, we'll have the soup to nuts, end-to-end, Lego brick style uh, solution for anything that you need in the area of digital assets. And um, Meteco has been great, like you may have heard a few weeks ago, yeah. the announcement around HSBC, which has decided to use Meteco. And similarly, there are a number of other financial institutions who are choosing to do the same thing because their vision aligns with what we are doing. Yeah. So um, I think this is really, you know, kind of a, a, one of the most important parts of, you know, and I, I do use the word Web3. It's, I know some people are, are, are getting away from that concept, but, you know, it is the next iteration of the internet, which allows for for custody and, and assets and ownership to be moved around. Um, and I think one of the most important things is that it really is the modular internet. Um, and when we talk about not just the internet, we're talking about the modular financial system. And so, you know, right now, if you choose, you know, a banking partner, you choose uh, a lender, you choose, you know, anything else, you're kind of like, this is, this is the way they're going to manage it. And those rules are static. Um, I think it's really interesting what you guys are doing, which is you're saying like, look, we have a default solution, which is, uh, and, and Medico is, is a, a fabulous company. They, they're, you know, uh, not only custodying, but ensuring, you know, billions of dollars. Um, so, you know, they're, they're adhering to all the rules and regulations of, of TradFi, but, but utilizing this new blockchain tech stack. Um, to me, what's most interesting, you know, is, is the thought of like, look, you, you have a place to start because the idea and concept around self-custody, I, I will be clear, I think it's a right that everyone should have, just as you can go and pull cash out of a bank, put it under your mattress and it's there. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, I don't think most people, uh, including myself, you know, really like no matter how educated you are, are really prepared for the true concept of self custody. Um, and, and the repercussions of, of what happens when, it, when we do have immutable assets, uh, like this. And we see time and time again, no fault to anyone else's. 
you know, that, that you can do everything right and, and something still happens. So, so I love the concept of you guys kind of leading that forefront and providing a default solution right off the bat. What's been the banks, you know, cause you know, banks are custodians, you know, how, what's their, what's been their kind of response to this? So um, this is just my view, having worked at HSBC for 10 years. So I'm coming from that knowledge versus um, knowing that what every bank is thinking. So this is banks bread and butter, right? So banks provide safekeeping for traditional assets around the world all the time, right? And there is no reason why mm-hmm. they would not jump on the opportunity to doing the same thing in digital assets as well, right? Uh, would they do it themselves? Possibly no, because generally bank banks tend to be laggard in terms of technology adoption. Would they want to partner with somebody, a fintech like us, and then develop that solution? The most likely answer is yes. But eventually, I also see, and this is, again, um, like just my own view, I think banks will buy um, uh, custody solutions like this eventually at some point to kind of integrate into their core offering. So either deep integrated partnerships or essentially Mm -hmm. buying that solution, essentially bringing that in, right? Because at some point, they'll have so much demand from their customers all of them who will be holding digital assets in some form. It could be stable coins. It could be uh, free floating assets. It could be a CBDCs that they will, like they provide safekeeping for traditional assets, they will need to provide this for digital assets as well. Yeah. So I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the clients of which, you know, you serve and, and you know, the, these various products serve because now you guys are a custodian as well. Um, and, and I see kind of really it being threefold. There's, you know, the institutions, uh, you know, which are which have been working for years uh, to be able to kind of integrate with with blockchain technologies. You know, it's a big technology stack upgrade for them because uh, they're, you know, they're not just going to throw their stuff away and go to like, oh, you know, every bank has a, a seed key for their their wallet and here you go. Like we need, you know, true institutional and enterprise solutions. And, and that's what you guys are providing. Um, so you've got, you've got the institutions, you have the professional traders that are managing this. And then there's retail. And I, I think retail is the one that's most interesting to me. And I love Ripple's perception because I see the retail is not, you know, myself as, as a mid forties, um, you know, Gen Xer. I, I, I see it as my son's uh, age, you know, which is really the ones that are growing up in, you know, this kind of new digitized, uh, tokenized uh, world, um, you know, that, that's a 16 year old. And I, I said, you know, hey, we, we've got you a bank account. Do you want to use it? He goes, no, I, I have my crypto wallet. That's fine. That's all I need. Um, and he really believes that that's all he's ever going to need, um, you know, as he grows up and moves throughout the world. Yeah, 100%. And right, I think also what needs to happen is like you rightly said, right, each company will choose their own target segment that they want to go after, right? So for us, we have chosen it to be the enterprise or B2B, and we'll continue to stay B2B as per the direction of the company, but we will enable number of B2B2C companies, right? So they could be hundreds of entrepreneurs, Ripple doesn't need to do everything themselves, who will essentially say, hey, you know what, I want to develop a great solution for retail, for account abstraction, for bringing them, I mean, with a very simple onboarding, or I will cater to professional traders, and we will continue to serve them as well. It's just that we may not, may or may not take them as direct customers in terms of retail and traders. And it's just that because you can't do all the things at the same level of deep expertise as you would want to for all segments. So the segment that we have chosen is enterprise and we're having tremendous success. And that's just not now for a number of years, right? And in our view, uh, there's, a, there's a strong possibility that a lot of people, uh, I mean, 95% of the people who are not into cryptos will possibly go to their existing brands and if they have an equal or a better capability available from existing brands, they may choose to do so. And we are enabling those brands to then say, hey, you know what? Jay wants to come via a brand he trusts. So let them have the choice. Let him have the choice. Or he can, of course, go through a brand uh, uh, which is which is new, right? Um, but that's the choice that you have always. We'll keep enabling those 
those brands to essentially uh, get more business and then keep offering more products and services to their existing customers. Yeah, that's fabulous. So, you know, one of the things that's most important is, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that that uh, Ripple has the tech stack. Um, you guys have done this integration for years, you know, so this is, and, and you know, from your experience and, and your dev teams, you know, which we're very familiar with, there's, there's the experience of understanding TradFi and being able to bridge into, you know, not, not DeFi per se, um, but, but, you know, kind of this, this new blockchain-based finance world. The hardest part that you guys can't control, you can control your tech stack, you can acquire companies. Um, it has to do with, you know, regulations around the world. Um, you know, I think the clearest that we've seen uh, has been my car out of the, the, the EU. Um, you know, talk a little bit about what it's like to have kind of that welcoming, um, you know, hey, we see, you know, as, as far as, you know, regulators and legislators, they, they see the future, uh, they understand where this is going, and they're being very quick to provide, you know, guidelines um, around how to manage this, <clears throat> both for, from the institutional level, uh, as, as well as the retail level. Yeah. Um, so first of all, our view always have been very straightforward on this, that regulators should regulate the activity, not the technology, right? So... Mm-hmm doing X thing which is wrong on the internet or in the traditional world is wrong on the blockchain. Money laundering is wrong on the blockchain. Money laundering is wrong in the physical world or in the internet world, period, right? It doesn't matter what technology gets used. Similarly, there are lots of right things uh, which essentially make sense uh, for which blockchain is a super efficient solution to, for example, to move money from point A to point B, lowering the friction, lowering the cost, making it instant because the great news is cryptocurrencies trade 24, 7, 365 days a year. If they do, then they become a great bridge asset. When Jay wants to send money to Naveen, when we are in two different currencies and the trading is 24, 7, that means Sunday night, 12 o'clock, uh, which is Monday morning, 12 o'clock from me. If a 12 hour time difference, we can still instantly, you're able to send money to me, not worrying about your existing institution being closed and other things like that, right? And you have multiple means. You can use uh, bridge assets. You can use stable coins. You have a number of options through which you can do pathfinding which delivers the maximum amount of fiat uh, in the time zone that I am in and, and essentially just comes into my bank account or into my wallet, what have you, right? So to, to our mind, as regulators essentially enable that, they enable velocity of money, they enable better products and services to be sold by companies in their countries, then I think they, they, they will provide a level playing field. And already, like you rightly said, with my car, Europe has taken a first step and we live in this, um, you can call it comparative disadvantage or advantage world, right? So my view would be a lot of other countries will follow. Uh, UAE is very strong, for example, in terms of its regulation yes. and being very progressive. So has been Singapore. And as these countries progress, there is no other choice but for the laggards to catch on. Because the last thing that they want is economic activity to be shifting from there because regulations have not been progressive. And we are already seeing that. We are seeing that in our dialogue, but it will essentially gain steam as, like you rightly said, MICA, countries like UAE and Singapore move further forward. You know, it, it, it's really one of those things. I've, I've traveled the world this year and, and you know, traditionally I'm, I'm very U.S. based um, for, for my previous businesses and my, my former lives. Um, and as I spend more time, you know, overseas, and you and I spent some time together in, in South Africa together, um, it, it really has become very prevalent, you know, how much of a dire, desperate need most of the world is for, you know, a, a transparent financial system. <clears throat> um, you know, one of the things that was most, you know, amazing to me was uh, when we were in South Africa, uh, I was walking through a mall and, and in one corner of the mall, 
there was six ATMs. Um, and I've never seen anything like that before. And, and I didn't understand the, the reason I took a picture, showed it to uh, a couple of locals and they go, yeah, no, the banks don't trust each other. Um, they have no ability. There's no cross compatibility in between them. So, you know, you have to have a card for each specific ATM and, and that's it. And, and it really showcases that, that those of us in, in some of, uh, you know, more developed worlds or developed countries, um, we take things like that for granted, that, that there are banking laws that, that, you know, provide for clear settlements and, you know, cooperation amongst, amongst banking partners. Um, but, but in some, some aspects in some countries, you know, there's so much corruption or so much, so many issues that, that we need to provide a, a faster system that, that is clear transparency and, and allows for those, you know, instantaneous settlements uh, so that you can have more, you know, consumer protection as well as consumer adoption of, of some basic things like ATM cards or, or credit cards. Hundred percent, and that's the reason, Jay. What you will find in certain countries, there'll be leapfrog that will happen, right? So basically, I mean, of course, traditional systems are built iteratively, right? To say, hey, X happened, Y happened, Z happens, right? But some of the countries will just move from X to Z because they'll essentially say, hey, we don't need Y in the middle. And I would say, whole of Africa almost has has that you can call it advantage, or they're standing in a time where they may say, hey, you know what? Let's just skip uh, this six ATM scenario, and then let's just move to a blockchain-based model, right? And many companies will, many countries will choose to do that. And in some way, communities in those countries will choose to do that, right? And this, of course, will happen in, let's say, failed countries a lot more easily where the local currency has failed because there the people have free choice because there's no local currency that they need to defend. So it'll happen a lot more quickly. And that will create examples for lots of others to follow. But again, these are social experiments that take a little bit of longer time. And, and actually, they're happening at the ground level today. Yeah, and I, and I think this is a good time to call out. My, my personal theses, uh, my personal feeling is that when we talk about, you know, cross-border payments, when, we're, when I'm talking about, you know, faster settlements and everything else, I, I'm, I also want to be very clear, you know, I, I do believe in KYC, KYB, AML, OFAC compliance across the board, um, but in a very, you know, efficient manner compared to, you know, the, the traditional banking system it has its today. And uh, I, I'm going to assume that Ripple shares that view. Yeah, 100%. And I would say that today technology enables us to do 99.9% of it just in an automated fashion, right? So it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be um, um, crazy. It doesn't need to be complicated. It can be very, very simple and move forward quite quickly. And I think technology today allows that allows that, and it has already solved for a number of these things. And, and also, I would say, I would at least in, in my view, the people that I've met and have worked with or done business with, Almost, I would say all or 99.9% of them want to be compliant, right? So there is no desire for them to hoodwink the system. It's only a very small amount of bad actors that essentially give that name. But what we need to do is we need to build a, build a system for 99.9% to essentially say, you want to be fully compliant, tick in the boxes, tell me what you need from me, but don't ask me for that repeatedly. Don't stop each one of my transactions essentially going through. Just then give me a smooth automated process and I'm happy to help you with digital ID or what have you. But after that, just give me the freedom to send money anywhere to whomever I want, whenever I would want. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a massive shift coming and I, it's something, you know, why Wells and FinRamp are working on, uh, which is this concept of, of a, a, a tokenized ID, you know, on, on-chain identity related to your KYC AML um, that, that allows for, you know, right now, if, if you know, you know how much fun this is. You know, if you are even in any way, shape or form related to, to blockchain technologies, you know, you don't even have to 
I don't have a token. I have nothing. It takes six plus months to get a bank account open. Um, and that's a, that's a real challenge. You know, that's a, that's a barrier to business. And, and again, this is as a United States citizen, um, you know, I can go upstairs and I can open a bank account for myself. I can do it for my traditional companies. Uh, but if it's even related to blockchain technologies, you know, just even around education or anything else, you know, it's, it's six plus months. It's, it's, it's very invasive due diligence. And, you know, it's, it's really showcases, um, I, I think a little bit of how scared or uncertain uh, a, a lot of TradFi is of, of this new technology that really shouldn't be designed. To, it's not designed to replace it. It, it. it should be welcomed with open arms to enhance uh, the rails of which they've been operating on for the last 40, 50 years. Jay, couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think um, it's, it's high time that I think this, I would say, I would say wrong behavior. I think I couldn't say anything else. It's truly wrong behavior <laughs> of uh, of holding back genuine businesses by removing the financial infrastructure that essentially enables them, right? So to me, it's wrong. And at some point, it needs to be corrected. Either it needs to be corrected by some self-guiding um, principles or essentially through regulation, right? I mean, this shouldn't be genuine businesses should not be stopped from doing business and essentially growing and doing what's, what's right and to be done. In fact, I would say in some way, it forces businesses to take the wrong tack that itself is hugely um, wrong thing to do, right? I mean, if somebody genuinely wants to start a business and you don't, you don't provide them with a legal means to do so, then we are doing a huge disservice to them. So, you know, along those, those same lines, um, kind of walk me through how Ripple um, or, or yourself, it doesn't matter, um, you know, is really kind of thinking through these barriers of entry and, and scaling to that, you know, 100 million clients. Um, you know, and again, you guys are B2B, so that's not exactly, you know, your, your thing. You guys don't want 100 million clients, but, but that's who your, your, your business is, your consumer, uh, serves is, is those hundreds of millions, uh, and billions of clients. You know, talk through kind of the efficiencies of, of why, you know, this works so much better than the traditional, you know, kind of swift or, or archaic systems that, that we've been utilizing for so long. Yeah. So let me take a practical example, right? Because that's, that's the easiest way for people to understand it, right? Uh, and one can get 200 million. 100 million is not a not a big number, but and I'll explain to this in the B2B settings, right? So Jay is a subscriber, is, is, wants to read an article on Wall Street Journal. He essentially sees a Google link. He clicks on it, right? The moment he clicks on it, first thing he gets is a paywall, right? A paywall essentially says, hey, pay $39.99 or $19.99, whatever the case may be. And then you can become a subscriber of Wall Street Journal. But he says, hey, you know what? I don't want to become a subscriber. All I want to do is read this article on Bit, um, Bitcoin because this is relevant to me, relevant to the study that yep. I'm doing. And I'm happy to pay you a fair amount uh, for reading this article, 10 cents, 20 cents, whatever the case may be. And you know what? Wall Street Journal actually also wants to do that. It wants to give um, Jay the right to read that article for 20 cents because from their point of view, they're holding back millions and millions of dollars of new business because they're not able to do give an article per a price per article, right? But yep. in, the, in, in this case, let's assume, and, and the prime reason for that is because there's no payment system in the world that can effectively take 10 cents from Jay and essentially deliver to Wall Street Journal, right? But if you look at the case of XRP, and I'm just using this as an, as an example, but there could be many others, you could essentially effectively take 10 cents from Jay and give it to Wall Street Journal, and Jay can instantly have the right to essentially read that article, right? Now, that's just great. That's great for Jay. And this is also what I truly believe is financial inclusion. Financial inclusion is you take a service, which is which is important, and then you essentially unbundle it and offer it to people who can afford only 10 cents a time. And they, over time, probably will become users of Wall Street Journal, readers of Wall Street Journal, and you essentially bring them into the economy, not keep it at a 
high price so that they are not able to access it, right? So micropayments is a great example where you bring value of millions and millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars in this case to Wall Street Journal. You essentially enable hundreds of millions of users exactly like Jay who want to, for one time use, want to access that digital good and everybody wins. And of course, we already are able to provide the underlying system that is able to do that, right? So to me, it's a real practical example. And this is what we, I mean, encounter every day. We encounter paywall in every single magazine, every single newspaper that we read. And lots of times I give up, right? Because I really don't want to subscribe to that just for one article. But if this was a great way that's possible that I have a small wallet in which I keep, let's say, five US dollars equivalent of pocket change in digital assets, and then I'm able to pay 10 cents, 2 cents, 5 cents for that particular media content, then why not? And I, and I love the, those concepts, you know, to me, the one thing I'm, I'm going to say is, is the thesis is correct. The wallet infrastructure, which I know you and so many others are working on is, is, is just not there. It's, it's, it's very cumbersome at this time and we're seeing it happen. And this is kind of the part is that, you know, part of the innovation cycle is that we need more people to test, we need more people to try. This is the, this is the largest beta test of new technology in the history of the planet, which is, which is blockchain. Um, it, it, second only to, or, or, or I think above where the internet was years ago because we already now have internet rails uh, where we didn't. But to me, this battle of um, kind of, you know, the the, the, the DGENs, as I will say, you know, kind of like, hey, it's, you know, the technology overrides re- regulation uh, versus, you know, those of you like, you know, like Ripple and others that are like, no, we, we want to do things legal and compliantly. I think we're seeing the divergence of, you know, the Pirate Bays versus, you know, the Apple Musics right now. Um, and, and you know, the technology stack is, is almost identical, uh, but it's the approach to like, what do we want to be when we grow up? Where does, where is this a real company in the next, you know, 20, 30 years? Um, or is this just a, you know, we want to prove our, we want to prove a use case. And, and there's, there's still a dark web today. Um, Pirate Bay still exists. LimeWire is, is out there doing its thing. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's a minuscule amount of the, of the traffic, um, compared to where we see, you know, true e-commerce and companies like Amazon and Apple Music and Spotify and, and all these others that are doing, you know, amazing big business. Is, is that kind of the same way you're seeing today is that, you know, we're going to kind of have to leave the, the, uh, the bad actors behind? Yeah. I think that that's, that's the right way to think about it. But also, I would say it is incumbent on the regulators to essentially see the picture exactly the same way as well, right? So for them, by being progressive in regulations, we are able to provide better investor protection, are able to truly serve the businesses, which essentially create GDP growth for that particular country, right? And by enabling that to happen, you're essentially giving the message to the bad actors, hey, what is acceptable behavior and what is unacceptable behavior? Because some other people can claim ignorance to say, hey, I didn't know you never set out the rules. How would I know that this was wrong thing to do, right? And I think the last thing that you would do, you, you would essentially also do is raise the price for bad behavior, right? So all the three things you are able to accomplish, enable your citizens to essentially start companies, export and import, and essentially build business in the top, tell what is right and wrong, and at the same time, raise the price uh, for people who act uh, in the wrong way. So then there is no confusion. Everybody knows what they're getting into. And like you rightly said, the number of bad actors will be so small, so minuscule, and we'll be able to identify them a lot more quickly. So one of the, the the reasons why the internet was able to grow, and and I talk about this quite often, is the difference between like email and messaging apps. Is email has like I can, you know, it has standards. It has like, hey, this is like we understand that you can do anything you want on this technology. Like 
it's a bunch of ones and zeros floating around. You can do anything you want. How, how do we, you know, establish some standards, but, but keep, still kind of stay with a little bit of this open source, you know, or, or do we think we're kind of leaving the open source, um, you know, freedom behind and, and going to kind of move into like, no, this is, we operate this way. We operate on this standards. And if you don't, you know, adhere to kind of pop three or IMAP standards, you know, your, your email is not going to get into our, our email servers. Yeah. So generally what we have seen previously happening is one country takes the lead, right? So to take example of internet, US took the lead to say, hey, let's establish the standards or, I mean, cajole companies to come up with the standards which we can stamp and which we can agree with, right? Uh, I think it, in, in, in the case of cryptocurrency, it could be MICA. So if essentially MICA becomes a standard, like what happened with GDPR. GDPR is the uh, yeah. data standard around the world and like GSM. So many things, so like MICA could be one where let's assume it progresses and 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 it's it sort of adapts itself. A lot of countries could look at it and then say, hey, you know what, we don't have the time and energy to develop our own standards, but this MICA sounds good. Let's adapt to our environment. And then so the world starts to look like a little bit of fabric of MICA. So they may have different shades uh, of gray around MICA, but then that becomes starts to become standard. So, uh, I mean, standards come through different ways, either industry getting together, or governments getting together, or one government taking the lead and everybody else follows. And of course, time will tell whether indeed the case, but like you rightly said, that's definitely correct. We do need some standards which everybody can adhere to and they could do cut, paste and copy, but that's fine. But we need a global standard for blockchain because it's a global technology. Its use is global, its availability is global. So uh, definitely it can it can do well with a global standard. So, so I completely agree. So uh, let, let's talk a little about trade finance. <clears throat> you know, it's, 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 you know, one of the largest asset classes around the world. You know, every supply chain is, is utilizing this cross, you know, it, it kind of is like the perfect, you know, maelstrom of, of what blockchain can solve. You can, you can have assets, you can have payments, you can have, you know, smart contracts that are mirrored with legal contracts, escrow, fiat, like you, you can take a highly complex process. Um, that involves countries around the world and, and streamline, simplify and, and secure, you know, a lot of, a lot of these assets, you know, walk me through kind of, you know, what your thoughts are about how, you know, true kind of trade finance supply chains will be, uh, really just entirely rebuilt now under, under a blockchain infrastructure. So firstly, the answer to that is yes, right? So the problem is overwhelming. Blockchain is a good solution, right? But what I want to come to is, Jay, and, and this is what I have experienced both in my entrepreneurial journey and at Triple, right? Sometimes when either the problem of opportunity is so big that you really don't know where to start, right? You essentially say, hey, you know what? This is big, but you're never able to achieve critical mass uh, in solving that problem because it's it's whatever you do is so suboptimal, right? So this is the, what I do did when I was building for Uber for trucks in India, and this is exactly what I did. Um, when I'm at Triple is let's solve for one corridor. Let's say, hey, you know what, between UAE to India corridor, let's make it super efficient. Just make sure that our product and services, the customer experience is exceptional. The, the, the value that we're delivering to the customer versus the price that we're charging is exceptional. And everybody says, hey, you know what, this is absolutely brilliant, right? And then you take that, that let's say, from point A to point B, one corridor that you've solved for, start solving for three others and start solving for nine others and 27 others. And slowly what you'll find over X years of time, you essentially reach critical mass in this global problem around the world, right? So to me, and I've, I've spoken to a lots of companies and, and like you rightly said, trade finance is a big, but we have to solve one corridor. Let's assume we say, hey, you know what, we'll solve for Argentina to Brazil and maybe in single 
goods category or we install yeah. Brazil to China in just supply of iron ore, right? Or whatever the case may be. And the moment you solve for that, you demonstrate to the world, hey, you know what, this is doable, this works. There's limited number of actors, right? There are only two governments, only I mean, in terms of regulatory, two variables to deal with. And once you do, you create a box in which it essentially works and everybody goes, hey, you know what? Cost gone down by 40%, error rates are down by 90%. The velocity of money is increased tremendously. Everybody's winning. We need to replicate this. And then there is another country, again, because we live in the world of competitive disadvantage or advantage, says, I need to replicate this because this can create GDP growth or, or create progressive uh, nest for yeah. our exporters or importers. And then you suddenly start, huge amount of replication starts to happen. So to me, that needs to happen for this trade finance problem to get solved. We need to take a narrow corridor, a narrow segment, mm. big enough, which has the demonstration effect. And the moment that demonstration effect is there, you would find essentially makes sense. And it doesn't matter. I mean, initially there'll be five standards and that's fine. And eventually they'll all essentially come together in one common standard. And that's that's all right, because maybe there are different people who will view that particular example and then, and then try to adapt uh, to their own markets. Yeah, it, it, crawl, walk, run. You know, let's, let's, let's figure that out. And I think that makes a ton of sense, you know, because that, that's, you know, I, I basically equates, you, you talked about, you know, trucks. So, you know, when Elon came out with the, uh, the semi-truck, um, you know, version of Tesla, you know, I was like, oh, you're not going to be able to do this and this and everything else is, I don't care about any of that. There's a very finite use that there's, you know, from plant to plant, you know, these are, these are trucks that are going back and forth in between the exact same, uh, two, two distribution centers every single day, seven days a week. It's a known route. There's no changes to it. And, and that's the thing that has to be done. And so if you can start with a, you know, being efficient, you know, in, in known corridors is just, as you just said, you know, that can change an entire industry because you know what you're solving for. Um, I think it's true. You know, that like I, I spoke to, uh, the, the head of blockchain at Visa, uh, last week, they're not even thinking you know, today about rolling that out to, to consumers, but internally they know their paths. They know how they're moving money. And they're, they're, I was very impressed, uh, by how advanced their internal, uh, blockchain usage is. I think that's the thing that most people don't understand is when they hear Visa and, and, and blockchain, they think, Oh, I'm getting a crypto wallet with my card. They're, they're like, no, we don't even want to talk about that. Like it's like just internally, we can, we can simplify, uh, reduce fees, you know, increase exposure or decrease exposure and, and risk, um, just by utilizing these technologies that, that, you know, I'm playing with your building. Um, is that kind of a, a good analogy? Yeah, hundred percent. Right. And also eat your own dog food is a great way, right? I mean, Visa is essentially saying, Hey, you know what, let's get inefficiencies in our own organization so that when we talk to our customers, we are hugely much more credible, right? Because we are able to show this work, didn't, this didn't work. And then we are able to get our customers to be a lot more efficient from what I hear from you. And that's the right way to do it. Yeah. And one of the things when we talk about, you know, trade finance or cross-border payments, I, I think that we're going to start seeing this, this evolution. And I know that you guys are working on it as well, where it's like, look, I, I want to pay my taxes. I want to pay my, you know, whatever the case is. But it's very slow. It's very cumbersome. It's very expensive to, to do so. Not in the money they're paying, but the administration cost to do so. You know, one of the great things about blockchain is, you know, being able to just integrate, make those payments, you know, do, do everything else. Because on the SWIFT system, when I send, you know, money to, to, to payroll in Canada or, or other countries, you know, SWIFT is like, it's designed to like, nope, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to pause it here. So it's actually 10 days to, for a United States company to pay a Canadian citizen because it just takes so long to move the money down the proper path, pay, pay everything else. 
we know what it is. It's the same thing we do every single, every other week, you know, being, being on a blockchain rails means that I would actually be able to keep money in, in my treasury, you know, for nine extra days compared to, you know, 10 days in advance, allowing that money to start moving its way down the path. And it's very expensive. Yeah. To use. And, and between you and me, Jay, like when NAFTA was getting signed, I would have done this the first, just essentially make sure that the money moves yeah. between Mexico, US and Canada, same day instantly, right? And that itself can create velocity of money and then essentially improve productivity in all the three uh, GDPs, right? And this is just everything else being the same. So, I mean, movement of money, but a movement of money between three countries instantly can essentially have a terrific impact on the GDPs of the country. And, and in some way, outside of regulations, it doesn't take much because companies like us and many others, um, very entrepreneurial, will essentially make that happen, right? Where where they will essentially take money and move move it instantly, which we are doing today between these three markets very, very efficiently. So, you know, one of the things, um, you know, that I want to kind of talk about is, is actually putting title, true title on chain. Um, and, and, you know, that's not what Ripple does, uh, but but you, you are an expert in the field. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts on this. So when we talk about moving true title, you know, whether that's, that's for a vehicle, for a, a property, or, you know, just assets or, you know, business ownership or anything else, you know, how do you think that that is, is doing today? And, and what's, what's kind of the gold standard of what you'd like to see? Yeah. So I think I will divide into two parts. So first, technologically, today, this is possible, right? Of course, it's been uh, proven by digital assets, but basically digital assets, assets are representation. So you could have a representation of lots of things. And mostly this, these things already exist in the real world. It could be gold, it could be diamonds, it could be many, many other things. And there are a number of entrepreneurs who are looking at technology and then saying, hey, you know what, how could we represent number of these physical assets or digital assets on the blockchain. And I think it's it's doable, right? I think to me, where a lot of work needs to be done is on the commercial side, on the regulatory side. Commercial side in terms of education of the people to say, hey, if I buy a diamond on the blockchain, why is it better? Why should I do so, right? What is really the positive impact to my life, right? And, then, and it's sort of like we need to go beyond the let's call it sexiness of the blockchain, right? It's in the blockchain and hence by it, right? I think few people buy that, but majority of the people say, hey, you know what? Nah, I think I'm happy with whatever is going on, right? So there needs to be an absolutely value-defining product and a feature and education around it so that the customer goes, yeah, wow, this is great. I would love to buy it. And I have got some share of the economics because uh, I'm doing it in blockchain versus the traditional method. And that's been true about internet, initial huge amount of adoption on Amazon happened because of cheaper prices, right? So almost like Walmart model in the traditional world, uh, what got replicated in the in the Amazon model, right? And then the second part I would say is regulation around disputes. I'm taking disputes as an example, but it's essentially saying, Jay sold something to Naveen, which essentially is registered on the blockchain. Now the court, the US court need to recognize, hey, that this good really got transferred from Jay to Naveen and Naveen is the new owner and recognize me here as such, assuming we have a conflict. And I think there is still more work needs to be done there where the courts or the justice or the legal system needs to recognize uh, the ownership of assets on the blockchain. And once that happens, then you will start seeing actual movement because now not only you have the goodness of all the benefits that come on the blockchain and the commercial model around it, but you also have the protection of the rights, which we all worry about when things go bad and make sure that all that's also adhered to. So these two things are required, but the tech is already there and there are a lot of successful, I wouldn't say successful, smart entrepreneurs who are essentially building 
um, uh, tokenization, I mean, tokenization of real world assets, uh, the original theme that we started with uh, using blockchain as the underlying technology. Do you, do you believe that we still need centralized issuers? So when I buy a car, uh, you know, here in America, um, you know, they, they, they give me, they say, you know, no problem, go pay your taxes. And then we're going to give you a title. And the title is this piece of paper and the piece of paper is, is essentially a derivative. It has no real meaning. It has no real value other than it, it, I can, when I sell it, you know, I'm going to give that piece of paper to, to the, to uh, the next buyer. And they're going to have to go back to that central authority that will validate and verify that there's, there's no extra claims. There's no liens. Everything's The title's clear. Everything's fine. And then they will reissue in a, a brand new certificate uh, or a brand new, brand new title to the new buyer. Um, you know, and I think that that to me is, is, is a way that works. It, it means that, you know, if I lose my title, which, which has happened before, you know, I don't, my car is not, not just sitting in my driveway as an illegal asset. Uh, that I can't sell anymore because it's gone and it's never going to be recovered. You know, there is somebody responsible. And I think it goes back to my concept of, of self-custody is, is, is you're right, but it's not a good idea for most people. Um, do you feel that, that we kind of have that blend of, of TradFi rules and regulations and a little bit of, of, you know, utilizing blockchain technology, uh, you know, not for the immutability of it, but for the efficiencies of it. Yeah. So my view is that both these models will essentially exist. So centralized model and decentralized models will coexist, right? And depending yeah. upon the use case and the context, people will essentially choose one or other. They could be, a, I'll give you an example, there could be a country where people don't have trust in the governments or in the regulatory bodies in other places, right? So there, the decentralized model works well because they essentially say, hey, you know what? We can essentially vote or we can essentially delegate our votes to 20 nodes and these 20 nodes we trust because they will never collude all 20 of them together to essentially hoodwink us into something, right? But there are countries which are high trust countries. Japan is one example where I personally live. High trust country, people trust the government, people trust the institutions, and hence they are comfortable with a centralized issuer, right? So to me, yeah. depending on the context, product, service, um, uh, I mean, both models will exist and there, is, there doesn't need to be one size fit all. In fact, I can see a model where the same company can essentially choose a decentralized model in one context and a centralized model in one context, right? And I think to me, that's really the, the, the power of blockchain that you can essentially choose a decentralized or a centralized model depending upon what your business case requires, right? And this, this we don't need to have this fanatism of, hey, blockchain is only decentralized. And if it's centralized, we won't value it on more. Essentially, the customer should decide and their context should decide what business model is essentially most appropriate for them. So one of the really interesting, I love that answer, by the way. Um, so one of the most interesting things is, you know, conceptualizing, you know, what this new world will look like, you know, in the early days of, of web one, it was like, holy cow, I, I can, I could theoretically interact with people around the world. You know, I can send an electronic message that, that gets to somebody, you know, near instantaneous and, and have, you know, communication without, you know, picking up the phone, time zones, all those other things. Um, and, and we've seen kind of how that evolved. You know, some theses did not play out. Um, some, some were just ahead of their time. When you kind of, you know, with all the exposure you have, with all the travel you have and all the, the entrepreneurs you interact with, what's kind of got you most excited over the next like truly five to 10 years? Like if we look out in that crystal ball and, and we now have, you know, global regulation that, that's, that's clear, um, let's just pretend it's all my car. Um, you know, what really has you excited about some of the concepts and, and, and kind of good that will come to the world? Yeah. So truly the main thing that I'm excited about is financial inclusion. And I just want to very upfront, this is the most thrown 
out an abused world word because it feels cool, it's easy to say, and 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 people talk about it, right? But true financial inclusion can only happen the way that all the products and services that are today available to Jay and Naveen, the privilege of having those products and services, yeah. is available to somebody who wants to just have exactly the same thing, but at at by investing or putting in 100, 1,000, 1 millionth of, of part of that, right? And I'll give you an actual example. So in India, 20 years ago, uh, shampoo bottles were unaffordable to 95% of the people, right? So only the top 5% would be able to afford a shampoo bottle. And I, I mean, a, a, a half a liter bottle would cost uh, five or six US dollars at that time in that current current exchange rate, right? And after that, what Unilever and PNG did was they essentially sashayized the shampoo bottle, right? So now when somebody is going for a party or that special event, they could essentially use the shampoo to essentially wash their hair, right? And this used to cost only one or two cents or five cents, right? In, in, in that particular price, right? So now they bought, ex- brought exactly the same product that essentially they use in big bottles in when very, very small parts for people to choose to use it whenever they would want, right? And of course, the market exploded because lots of these customers who use the shampoo for the first time started to become regular customers of Unilever and PNG. And suddenly, they opened floodgates. And this is what I think is true financial inclusion. So financial inclusion is not charity money. It's a commercial model, but it speaks to the context of 95% of the people who live in a different context versus the 5%, right? So to me, micropayments essentially enable exactly the same thing. Distribution, right? So there is a big debate in the US around accredited investor, right? In fact, if you speak to a non-accredited investor, I think their blood boils to essentially say, hey, X number of people are able to get into a Facebook pre-IPO shares and I can't because I'm not an accredited investor. Do you think I'm a fool, right? I mean, instead of trying to protect me, actually you're causing me more harm because I want to invest in this asset class and I'm not able to, right? So we mm-hmm. should be able to give a right for a pre-IPO shares or those funds at somebody who wants to invest as less as $1. And I think there are two aspects to it. So one, of course, uh, they they uh, want to invest and they can get the benefit of the economic return. But the second, people like choices. People don't like to be told, you can't do this, Right or you are, you're, you're not smart enough to do this, right? People with more money are smarter, right? And these things create, and, and to me, in, in some way, if you look at commentary around Reddit on Robinhood and, and AMG, or a lot of, lot of AMC, sorry, a lot of stock, you can see yeah. some of that anger coming out to say, hey, I'm smart, I'll make my own decisions, and let me show you what I can do, right? And, 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 in, 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 and it sounds crazy, but actually that is coming from the moment we deny people the options, people get very upset and, and rightfully so because essentially everybody should have the right with proper information to make their own decision on what they want to do with their money, right? So to me, that's what true uh, true democratization is, true financial inclusion is, to bring the same product and service in a commercial model to its smallest unit of economics, which people can essentially consume and use. Uh, it's a fa- one of the best answers I've ever heard uh, about truly what financial inclusion should mean. Um, it's not just about having a bank account. It's about having access, uh, you know, for educated invest- investors. And I think that's the biggest thing that we need to get to is educated investors versus accredited investors. Um, I, I know plenty of people that have lots of money and they're, they're not near, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Um, some days that's me included. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the idea that you're essentially right is that a lot of these old rules exist because the technology, you know, didn't allow for this to happen. Um, you know, that you can KYC someone in and say, yeah, I want to put a dollar into an IPO. Okay. 
you know, the, 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 there's a, a tiny fee. It's, it's, it's very feasible. You can hold it there and, you know, you want to buy one share of that, of that company. Great. No big deal. I, I, I love that, that concept and idea. What, what do you believe is the biggest roadblock to, to making that happen? Is it, is it the, the institutions that are kind of the gatekeepers and, and they like the way things are done? Or do you think it's the regulators, you know, that are, that are still kind of holding on to like, you know, it's not broken in their minds. We don't need to fix it. Yeah, I think I would say um, two things, right? One, I would say uh, crazy entrepreneurs, right? So they will be, uh, they will be a bunch of crazy entrepreneurs who will come around who will essentially break the the jar and it hasn't happened. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow. We don't know, right? And and I wouldn't call it a roadblock. It's just a matter of time, right? So sometimes yeah. we are we are we are at t is equal to zero when it's going to be t is equal to one. Automatically, these things these things will happen, right? Uh, this is an idea whose time has come. And then second, I would say progressive regulations, right? Progressive regulations can be a great enabler for a number of these things can so that they can essentially move forward without chaos, right? They will mm-hmm. move forward, but they will it'll be chaotic like it's happening in in the DeFi world, but with progressive regulation, it can move in a more methodical way and essentially making sure that not too many things get broken, right? Uh, and here, the, the, when we think about progressive regulation, we we are not saying that they need to allow anything illegal or immoral, but they just need to make it easier for people to experiment and build new businesses. You know, it, and and I, I was playing the game in, in 2020 with, you know, AMC and, and GameStop and others. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and, and did quite well um, because when when a large group of people became, you know, hyper-focused on a traditional stock, um, it, it became very apparent, you know, that there was issues, you know. And so we hear, you know, that the, you know, uh, the hammers coming down on, on blockchain technologies because of all these things. I, it was, you know, abhorrent. A, a what they were doing with with GameStop, you know, working with you know a, a close to 180 percent of the actual number of stock certificates that existed, um, you know, with no you know, with no reconciling, you know, at any regular period to say like, hey, hold on, we need to freeze the stock because we're we're over 100 percent distribution. Something's happening. There, there's games being played on the on the background, and and even if that's not true. Even if even if they were 100% on board and everything was perfect, why was there the confusion? Why was there the games? And that was really one of the things that pushed me to say, like, look, I now believe that that every stock market, every asset is going to eventually move to blockchain technologies in some, whether it's a public chain or private chain, because you just can't have that level of uncertainty. You can't have, you know, trillions of dollars moving into these, these you know, servers and and even regulators don't know what's going on in there because it's 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 kind of so uh, opaque uh, what, what's happening. Another you example know, G- of that, Jay, just to interject, is this T plus three settlement, right? So yeah. just by not settling instantly, we have we have put huge amount of risk between Jay and Naveen, between financial institutions, and we are always worried. Hey, if and I mean, essentially created a huge amount of capital burden on the overall economy, right? So everybody is essentially keeping capital aside. Because they don't know if the institutions will fail, will the stock exchange fail? I mean, it just doesn't make sense when the technology allows you to do instant settlement. Why you should be on T plus three or T plus two or T plus six, right? And because you're making capital inefficient and you're essentially burdening the economy with a lot more cost, which essentially can become cheaper, faster, better if we were to move to instant settlement, for example, by the use of new technology and which essentially blockchain allows you to do today. Yeah, and, and and instant settlement. You're right. It's 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 decreasing risk, um, you know, because you you know exactly what happened where where. And you know, I think that it's 
it's just a matter of time. Um, I already know every bank is going through massive, you know, uh, fintech infrastructure changes to allow for the integrations of these. Um, and I think it's very similar to what Visa is doing for, for phase one. Um, you know, they, they want to use it internal for bank to bank, which is exactly what uh, Ripple Ripple's adhering to. You know, consumers and, and retail is going to come later. Um, you know, there, there's still, like I said, I do not believe uh, there's a wallet system that exists. And I was just at the Firebox conference last week, some amazing technology, brilliant people, uh, and really focused on the future. We're just not there yet with a retail wallet um, that really kind of works the way that that I think consumers want with the protections. You know, it, 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 think about the early days of email and, you know, you and I are about, uh, remember this well, you had an inbox, <laughs> you had a delete folder and you had a, and you had sent. That was it. Like that was all you had. It, spammers could put anything they wanted in there. There was no concept of spam filters. There was no extra folders. It was just like, you know, send, receive or delete. That was it. And I, I feel like we're, we're kind of right now with a single inbox. Like everything's either in your inbox or it, you know, it doesn't exist. And so we haven't really kind of built that multi-layer control, you know, to where email is now like, I, I couldn't live without it. I, businesses couldn't operate without it. And I feel like, like a true blockchain wallet is going to get to that level, but we're not even close yet. 100%. And I think tons of entrepreneurs are racing in that direction, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what's got you most excited? Um, what, what new tech have you seen, you know, whether it's related to world, world assets or Ripple? Um, but what's got you just kind of most excited right now? So I think I'll be very upfront, right? So now new tech doesn't excite me so much, but the execution of this existing new tech excites me even more, right? Because I think the technology challenges by and large sorted. But when I say by and large sorted, we know conceptually it works. We know in large scale um, experiments that it works. Um, I mean, if you look at Uniswap, if you look at number of like successful platforms, right? At least in terms of transaction scaling, going through ups and downs, they have they have proven the test of time, right? Now what we need to do is make sure that commercial models, and when I say commercial models is user adoption, uh, account abstraction, making it user very easy for people to onboard. All those things essentially need to be kind of built out, right? And to me, that's where the fun lies because now you start getting adoption. And once you, uh, doesn't matter how a user come into the blockchain ecosystem, it may come through stable coins, it may come through an NFT, but then you, once you get that critical mass, then they're open to doing multiple other things because they have had a superior um, uh, protected experience. And they say, hey, you know what? This is great. This is easy. Um, and, and I feel I can replicate it across multiple other things, right? And that's what I'm very excited about because then you essentially open the, the doors to a very, very big market, uh, which essentially we can't even imagine. And then it's a, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for tens of entrepreneurs because you have an educated and a, and, a, and, a, and a user who essentially knows, hey, how things, are, how things need to be done and then is able to replicate that experience across multiple asset classes, multiple experiences that they want to have. So, it, it, and I agree with you, we're, we're going from evolutionary um, or, or from revolutionary to evolutionary. So we're, we're now kind of an iterative designs. And I think that this is, you know, kind of during the crypto winter and, and you know, we're seeing the thaw right now as everything's moving in the right direction. Um, but, but, you know, we haven't seen like a dozen new level ones. You know, we're not seeing like tons of new chains coming out and, and everything else because, you know, as of right now, it works. It scales. You know, you can you can choose a, a layer zero, a layer one, you know, layer two, there's even some layer threes. Um, and, and so I think that kind of the ability to roll up and, and be a multi-chain or chain agnostic is, is huge. And, you know, the XRP ledger 
you know, you guys are going to be continually upgrading, scaling, and, and changing there. Um, but but you know, the ability to be you know cross compatible with with other assets and tokens, I think, is is where we're going. Is this multi chain future? Because when you go to a website, you know, it's it's generally pulling from multiple servers, you know, multiple deba- databases to to resolve a, a single image or a single page. Um, and I think that that's going to be a lot of what we're going to see here in the near future. Is that you know there is no one chain to rule them all. Um, like Swift, you know, you were kind of like, yep, either either you're a bank and you use Swift, or you're just not in, uh, you're you're not included in the financial system. So I, I think you're entirely right. We're going to see a lot of you know evolutions. We've already proven, you know, a a tokenized JPEG, <clears throat> you know, that of the concept of digital scarcity can be worth tens of millions of dollars and hold the value and be able to trade as a financial instrument, um, whether that's legal or or even anyone cares. I, it's a great alpha test to showcase. Now we're ready to start beta testing. You know what, what we're talking about today, which is real world assets, real title, and start moving from you know millions and billions to hundreds of trillions of dollars into blockchain technology. Hundred percent, couldn't agree more. What do you do? You feel there's a, a scale or a limit at at this juncture today, or do you feel that we're just you know we we still need to build some some major infrastructure um, that's missing, or do you feel like it, it's time to start onboarding? Yeah. So what I would say is. Um, uh, I mean, firstly, these are, like I said, technology challenges will continue to come, but these are solvable challenges, right? Okay. Uh, it's already proven in a box, let's put it this way, right? Let's assume uh, there's 10 million customers who are lined up and something is not able to scale up. I think there will immediately be great brains who will essentially say, hey, you know what, we can solve it in this innovative way, right? So to me, getting the customer adoption is the critical part because the moment that happens, then there is a commercial model. There is a huge incentive for somebody to solve for those serving those 10 million customers well, right? So to me, it's really the customer focus, making sure the product and services deliver so much value, not the speculative value, but real value uh, to the customers that the customers line up and then say, hey, you know what, they're beating down the door. We need to get in, right? And, and that's what essentially will take it forward. And the rest of the infrastructure, yes, it does need to be built. It needs to be made easier. Uh, it needs to be um, have greater servers, but I think all that is fixable, doable, not an issue at all. I don't see that as a roadblock for us to be able to get from the point where we are currently. Fabulous. Fabulous. Navin, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. We know how busy you are uh, traveling around this time of year. Um, you know, I, I, again, as someone who is very involved in the industry, I, I think what Ripple is doing to kind of uh, bring awareness and, and integration into traditional finance institutions. Um, and where can people find you if they want to kind of follow you around, uh, learn more about what you and Ripple are working on? Yeah, I mean, Twitter, LinkedIn are easy ways to find me. Uh, also, Ripple, of course, um, we are active on on the social media Happy to uh, happy to interact with them, and absolutely, uh, Jay. Great to be on your show, and uh, thank you very much. Uh, and and look forward to coming back one of the days as we come and celebrate a very large number of users who will be who will be using blockchain in d- daily life, and we'll essentially say, hey, we called it on your show. Listen, about every six months we, we've had you on and, and it's just the scaling and the evolution. You know, you guys now have custody um, and, and we know that you have a long roadmap that you can't disclose here, but it's, it is really amazing to see, um, you know, the, the traction hitting and, and starting to see the institutions and, uh, you know, investors wanting, wanting to have, you know, regulated uh, blockchain infrastructure, which is, which is huge and, and a scalable problem. So thank you again for the time. Why Whales? We'll see you guys next time. Uh, this is our, our second episode on uh, real world assets on chain. Uh, see you guys soon. Take care. 
Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.